My name is Gaddafi Abubakar. I obtained both my BA and MA degrees in history from Bayoro University, Kano, Nigeria. Welcome to another Africa Knows podcast, an interview with Dr. Samaila of Bayoro University, Kano. But before we go there, we have another host to introduce, and he already began to introduce himself, Gaddafi Abubakar, also from Bayoro University, Kano. I am an academic staff in my alma mater since April 2012, engaging in research, teaching, and administration. My areas of interest include media history in northern Nigeria, Kano Emirate history, and contemporary issues of Islam in northern Nigeria. So you're very welcome, Gaddafi, and it's a great pleasure to host the show with you. Today's interview is with Dr. Samaila Suleiman, who is a senior lecturer in history at Bayer University Kano, and also the deputy director of the Aminu Kano Center for Democratic Studies in Mumbai House. He has a PhD in historical studies from the University of Cape Town and a whole host of awards and publications from all over the world. His research lies at the intersection of historiography, identity politics, conflicts, and peacebuilding in Africa. And the interview will, of course, be about his research, but also about the nature of Nigerian academia and, of course, decolonization. So, take it away, Gaddafi and Dr. Suleiman. I would describe myself as an accidental academic because I never really envisaged myself uh, working as an academic in the university. But I had... Uh, you know, great respect for academics when I was an undergraduate student, but I didn't really uh, plan to become an academic, but, but it's something that I enjoy generally as, as a career. And uh, well, what is your research interest? Well, I am a cultural historian working at the intersection of historiography, identity politics, conflict, and then now I'm becoming increasingly interested in, in peace building. But I try to do that within the purview of my primary research interest of the intersection between historiography and, uh, and, and identity politics. So I'm particularly fascinated by issues and questions around the politics of knowledge production, you know, and the ways in which history, particularly, but knowledge more generally, is deployed as an instrument of politics, identity politics, sometimes even violence. But most interestingly, like I said, I am interested in issues around the politics of history, okay. you know, and the ways in which it is used in, as a claim-making device. For instance, you know, amongst competing groups, you know, seeking to get access to national resources or in the context of competing communities, you know, fighting that is in, 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 in terms of violence and conflict, communal violence and, and conflict. But I'm, uh, in terms of method, I would say I'm particularly interested in historical and ethnographic methods. Okay. And that is because of the nature of my research. Okay. You know, I work with archives, museums, you know, and even the university as spaces and sites of knowledge production. Yes, yeah, so I, I am not only comfortable with the conventional historical method of studying you know, the textual traditions of historical writing, but I'm also interested in the, the actual concrete institutions where these texts are produced and uh, managed. And so, so I deploy ethnographic method in, in order to unravel this, this, this uh, 
uh, aspect of knowledge production. Mm-hmm. So, so, for instance, when I go to the archives, I observe the ways in which you know researchers, particularly historians, use the archives. So I see the archive as an epistemological organization beyond simply you know a report. I mean, a repository of data as seen in the conventional uh, uh, sense. So ethnographic method in the context of the museum, for instance, I work with visitors register, you know, looking at the ways in which museum goers interpret the documents and the the exhibitions in the the museum. You will be interested to know that there is a lot of politics embedded in museum uh, uh, practice. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of politics, some of the, the, the communal you know, uh, uh, violence and discourses around ethnicity and religion that you see happening today in northern Nigeria are also reenacted in the context of museum. Okay. So you look at the visitors' register. Okay. You know, you see the ways in which the museum goes. Different museum goes from different cultural and religious backgrounds interpret the exhibition. Okay. So the politics of identity and religion as well that as found in the real life situation outside these institutions are also transposed mm-hmm. or reenacted in, 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 in the museum context, for instance. So it's, it's a deeply ethnographic method mm-hmm. that is, uh, I mean, I think my methodology, I would describe it as a different methodology because mm-hmm. in the, you know, it defies yeah. the norm, yeah. the conventional mm-hmm. norm of just historical doing, research. Yeah, yeah, yeah historical research mm-hmm. where you simply work with primary documents, especially textual documents, mm-hmm. right? So so this I find really, really deeply uh, interesting as, as far as research questions, topics and methods are concerned. And I'm also a very multidisciplinary person. Okay. I, 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 I work with methods from different disciplines as well, especially okay. because as a cultural historian, you know, I am interested also in, like I said, ethnographic methods, mm-hmm. but also methods, you know, from sociology and anthropology, you know, because the boundaries, traditional boundaries of historiography have been expanded and deepened by a whole range of approaches okay. from cultural history, I mean, from cultural studies. Because human phenomena, the human experience, you know, can only can best be studied using different methods. What I call methodological pluralism or eclecticism, multidisciplinarity, Mm. and even transdisciplinarity going beyond the boundaries of Mm. the disciplines or bringing the methods and tools from two or more disciplines. Yeah. Uh, as an insider, what mm. is your perception of Nigerian academia? <laughs> Nigerian academia? Yeah. I think I, I would say Nigerian academics are, are, are doing their best, you know, working under very difficult circumstances. Uh, lack of funding, lack of research grant, lack of... Uh, I mean, there is money coming in, but this money is... Uh, mainly deployed in building physical infrastructure. So there is no adequate grant for research uh, and sometimes even the learning environment is not conducive. So this is some of the challenges or circumstances under which Nigerian academics work. 
but nonetheless you know i think they are struggling and 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 doing their best to to do research you know and produce knowledge in in, in their own uh, ways but uh, i think it is also important to realize that uh, you see one of the mistakes that we make is you know to creating this boundary between academia the gown and the town okay. academia and the society but the nigerian academia okay. shares many of the problems of the country okay so yeah. they are part of the problem they are part of the problem really okay. because they are, you, you forget about this notion of the ivory tower you know all, all this attempts to remove the academia from the larger society but our choices the choices that we make in terms of our research questions research topics and even the methodology are to a very large extent you know governed by you know our experiences in the society so in the case of the nigerian society that is deeply divided you know that is overly political you know so many cleavages around religion ethnicity you know sometimes even region you know I mean, some of these things or cleavages actually reflect in not only the composition of the academics within the academia you know in terms of universities colleges of education but also in terms of the intellectual the intellectual choices they make so for instance you would notice that in universities based in northern nigeria you know the academics are largely northerners and when you go to the south the situation is very much the same or even worse mm. right uh, so it's a reflection of the larger social context of the nigerian society you know in terms of this you know federal character thing that is the attempt to bridge the gap which has not really uh, yielded any any serious uh, effective result okay. so we are part of that problem the politics of identity you know even religion sometimes are also found in in academia okay yes yeah uh, do so the universities in the middle belt differ from those in the corner yes the uh, universities in the middle belt differ from those in the corner too. you go to the universities in the middle belt well the notion of the middle belt is problematic itself in terms of definition what do you define as the middle belt, belt. but let's take the case ah, of i know it's your area plato <laughs> and plato and uh, and mm. benue for instance mm. you go to the history department in plato for instance mm. you know you will discover that all of the most or if not all of the academic staff were are members of the so called indigenous communities in plato so those from outside or the so called settlers are really found in in within the middle belt academia if you like okay and it is not by accident it is because of the nature of the nigerian okay. state okay and society and you come to bayero university kano or sokoto you go to sokoto i mean it's very much the same so despite the federal character the attempt by officially by by government to make sure that there is a reflection of the diversity of the country in terms of uh, recruitment i mean even the ad- admission okay so you, you you know what i'm talking about exactly. you know, to see that students mm. in the north are largely northerners exactly you know they talk about catchment area exactly there is a policy which allows you know 
people, students or applicants, candidates from the immediate community or environment to be Even treated or accepted mm. as, as, you know, I mean, with preference, exactly. given priority. Mm. And the university is also expected first to serve the interests of its locale, the immediate environment, mm. in terms of its focus, in terms of even the kind of uh, thematic preferences they give to, 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 to teaching, in terms of teaching and research. So the Sokoto Caliphate, I mean, is a thing that is very prominent in the historiography and the teaching of history within northern Nigerian universities. For instance, when you go to the survey, there are these kind of differences that you see that reflect, you know, the dynamics of identity within uh, the Nigerian uh, uh, state. Okay. Yes. Uh, how do you think Nigerian universities have developed over the decades? Well, I think Nigerian universities have uh, developed and evolved, well, I would say originally as centers of excellence, centers of knowledge production, original research, primary research, you know, that were respected all over the world. There is no doubt about that, particularly between the 1960s and, say, uh, maybe 1980s, late 80s, probably even early 90s, for instance. But the situation is no longer the same, unfortunately. And they have transformed into, I would say, some would say glorified secondary schools okay. or mediocre institutions that are only interested in, like I mentioned earlier, building physical infrastructure, building roads and senate buildings, okay. you know, without or to the detriment of the actual process of knowledge production. So there is lack of investment in research, especially original research. You know, if you look at the 1960s and 70s, for instance, we used to have very vibrant universities, like such as the University of Ibadan, exactly. the University of uh, Insuka. I mean, the Zaria here, exactly. in the University. These were centers of excellence known all over the world yeah. for their quality of research and learning. And that is why in those days you find, you will find uh, expatriate, what I call expatriate scholars from all over the world. Because the whole idea of a university as a universal community of ideas, of, of individuals, you know, of individuals and ideas, you know, a blend, a fusion of, of multiple intellectual traditions. But I think, unfortunately, in the mid-80s, we saw, we began to saw a trend in Nigerian academia or universities where expatriates were really uh, excluded okay. from, from, from not only from administration, but, but, but I think they began to face very serious challenges okay. because of uh, politics. You know, okay, of, uh, politics of Nigerian yeah, state, not the okay. Nigerian state, because of politics within the universities okay. themselves. So, well, I think maybe this the politics began as a healthy intellectual debate before it became toxic later. Okay, we take the case of Bala Usman's debate with some expatriate scholars like uh, Thomas. Uh, I'm not Thomas X. Smith. Smith? Not Abdullah Smith. Okay. 
the author of Zozo Women in Zozo. MG? MG Smith. Okay. You know, and the rest of the RJ Carbon. Okay. They were all in Zaria. Exactly. You know, and many others in Ibadan, mm. in Suka, even here in Bahari University. Can, you know, they exactly. confronted a lot of challenges with the local academia because there was a suspicion that these scholars represented a different ideological, you know, agenda. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they were agents of colonialism. Okay. You know, so there was a serious problem. There was an attempt to, mm. uh, I would say, indigenize to decolonize, if you like, mm. even the, the, the staffing of the Nigerian universities. And many of those expatriate scholars were frustrated out of the Nigerian academia. And that was coupled with the economic crisis okay. resulting from the structural adjustment program of the yeah. 1980s. And many of them left. Yeah. Some of them, you know, persevered mm. over the decade, the 1980s until 1990s. Mm. You know, you remember even in the, the Department of History, Bayer University, you know, we had many of them. So exactly. last lovers, lovers, exactly. Yes, uh, many, many, many of them like that. Exactly. So we used to have uh, a vibrant tradition of intellectual debate and academic discourse in those days. You would remember, you know, the debates, the famous debates between Balausman and and Bangura, for instance. Balausman and many others in those days, but mm. it is no longer the same. Yeah, it's no longer the same. Yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, there are debates around decolonizing the academy. <laughs> yes. Uh, does this mean mean something to you? Yes. This <laughs> issue of decolonization, I think, is a very problematic okay. uh, uh, question or, or problem. And I say. See, it's, it's very important because decolonization is not a new debate. You know, it goes back to, especially in the African experience, goes back to as far back as, uh, in terms of intellectual discourse, to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, when there was an attempt to decolonize statements about African history. You know, all those Eurocentric, you know, statements about Africa having no history, having no culture, no civilizations. Of course, the genealogy of that narrative goes back to the 19th century Enlightenment campaigns okay. by Hegel, and even Marx and other Enlightenment scholars who laid the foundation of this stereotype about Africa as a land of savagery and primitivity. And this was taken up by colonial anthropologists and colonial uh, historians and even colonial administrators, you know, to to validate the colonial project. The colonial project itself was a knowledge-based project. Okay. It was not simply a, a political project as such. Okay. You know, the scaffolding of the whole colonial architecture of governance, mm. you know, was knowledge. Mm. Colonial historiography mm. or the colonial knowledge episteme. Right. So decolonization in its own right is a justifiable movement, right, which started also, you know, as a sort of a campaign in the between 40s and 50s against colonialism. But the decolonized, the decolonial debates that we are seeing today, especially in the context of this fallist movement that began in South Africa and then gradually you know, spread into other parts of the world, including UK. You know, the attempt to 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 really decolonize, you know, 
curriculums to dememorialize heritage of slavery, you know, dememorialize uh, heritage of slave owners, uh, the, the heritage of, uh, you know, I mean, the colonial heritage more, more generally. Mm. I think there is a lot of problem associated with this new campaign for decolonization because as far as I'm concerned, you know, the intellectual agenda is ambiguous. You know, and what it seeks to achieve ultimately is also, you know, saddled with a lot of problems. And I will give you a few examples. You see, when you talk about decolonization mm. in South Africa, for instance, I mean, you, there are so many things involved. Okay. You see, first, South Africa as a nation. It's just imagine out of colonialism, you know, less than three decades. And it's a country that is dominated by the white minority, you know, in terms of the composition of the academia, for instance, you know, the economy, you know, but it's a land of the blacks. Majority of the South Africans are blacks. So when South Africans talk about decolonization, then I begin to wonder what they actually mean. In, in terms of this composition of academia, you know, staffing within the universities, for instance. Okay, when you say you want to replace white academics mm -hmm. with black academics, mm -hmm. or you want to change the curriculum, you know, into an African-based uh, curriculum, you know, I think there's a problem with that because the issue of merit, what do you do with competence? You know, so it's not simply about replacing white with the blacks. So there has to, what I'm saying in this sense is there has to be a sort of uh, clear guidelines or blueprint about what you do with this current or present arrangement and what do you do with, uh, what do you do with, uh, issues around merit and competence. And so as far as I'm concerned, I think it is important to address uh, inequalities, you know, in terms of the composition of the staffing within the universities. But we have to be very careful about what that could do to the quality of knowledge that is produced. I hope you get the point I'm trying to, exactly. to make. Exactly. So it's not just about the races. Mm -hmm. It's important because, like I said, there, there is a sort of uh, mm. complex relations of power or inequality, you know, between the races. But there's no doubt that South African universities are good. Okay. You know, and they can even compete with universities in the West, you know. Mm. But the, the, the problem is that, you know, um, you know, the question of race is there. There is no doubt. Um, and there is need to bridge some of these gaps, okay, you know, of inequalities that has been created by the apartheid okay. system. Mm. You know, but in doing that, the point I'm making is that we should be careful so exactly. that we don't mm. simply out of affirmative action, exactly out of the need for affirmative action, mm you know, mm. create even more inequalities mm. or rather, 
destroy quality exactly mm. you know under the guise of uh decolonization okay and decolonization means different things to different communities different nations yeah. in nigeria who is talking about decolonization today for instance mm-hmm. people don't talk about exactly. it except exactly. perhaps in terms of reference to the decolonial struggles mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s exactly so there is a sort of intellectual well, complacency a sort of intellectual mm-hmm. complacency yes in this part of the continent i think in nigeria i would say mm. and that is because of the difference in historical experience of colonialism mm. say between south africa and nigeria, nigeria yes so mm. nigeria we assume that we have decolonized exactly since 1960 yeah we have decolonized <laughs> exactly. political decolonization mm. but the structures of the structures of what i would call epistemic domination mm. are still very much with us Okay. Yes. Okay. We have not been able to 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 to, to decolonize completely. Okay. If that was the objective or that is if that is the objective of decolonization, I don't think that we have decolonized completely. Okay. The the the, the, the example of such areas? Yes. I will tell you that okay. In terms of our own conception of knowledge, mm. structures of knowledge production the practices and traditions the methodologies mm. of knowledge production I, i don't think we have effectively decolonized mm. in africa yes. the concept of the university mm. is still colonial very much colonial exactly. deeply rooted in colonial legacies it's colonial heritage exactly. our historiographies mm. our sociologies mm. even our political science you know i mean the medical say all of this uh, what you might call you know colonial heritage intellectual heritage So what does it mean to really decolonize? <laughs> you know, is it simply about dismissing and doing away completely with anything colonial? Legacy, all the things that we have inherited from the colonial masters. Mm. And what does it mean to retain some of these structures of knowledge production and then dismiss others? The university. Mm. Even the term history, the language of scholarship and research. You know it's colonial because it's colonial. not it, we don't even use it, our indigenous exactly. language and non language is mm. the most powerful instrument of knowledge production exactly because it goes beyond simply language exactly. right mm-hmm. writing and talking mm. speech yeah. you know is a cultural you know medium of of exchange of production and exchange of knowledge so there is no way you can truly understand the nigerian history if you don't understand you know the indigenous languages in which in the primary original histories of this country you know were written for instance like the case of northern nigeria how can you truly understand northern nigerian history if you don't understand arabic mm? because most of the literature <laughs> yes, is in arabic so, yeah. so we are reading the history of the north or the history of nigeria largely through the 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 i mean medium of foreign languages certainly you know and it 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 limits our own ability to understand and comprehend the historical processes okay mm. so it's very important so so colonial de- decolonization is uh i think uh sub a debate that we should continue to have okay. but i think to, for it to be more productive we we need to be less you know sentimental about it in other words 
I think we should take knowledge or see knowledge as the property of humanity okay. more generally. So I don't care if there are methods or prisms, paradigms that are not local or that are foreign, but that are useful in the research and 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 uh, you know the study of 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 the less privileged parts of the world, for instance. I mean, I, I don't I don't I don't see any problem with that, really. So, yes. Yeah, you have a lot to say on that. Yes. Uh, do you see inequalities in the global structure of research and teaching? And if so, what should be done about it? The global research of teaching and research. Well, of course, you see, when you talk about inequalities in the global structure of knowledge production, obviously, I mean, this is an issue that is also associated with colonialism, okay. the, the, the effect of colonialism on different parts of the world. Colonialism, I think, has created an asymmetry of power relation amongst different parts of the world in terms of knowledge research and knowledge production. This division between the global north and the global south is always there. Mm -hmm. It's a binary opposition that, that we don't want to encourage, mm -hmm. but I think it's a reality that we have to deal with. Okay. The impact of colonialism has left the global south, you know, uh, really struggling, mm -hmm. you know, to 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 match up to to catch up or to, to imitate or, to, or to whatever you know the other part of the world the global north so it's a relationship of inequality okay. in the global north you have all the basic most critical infrastructures of knowledge production you know all that is required to to do research funding grants you know, the institutions, the infrastructure, electricity, the internet, the resources, you know, the materials that are required to do research and produce cutting-edge knowledge are available, you know, to a very large extent. But in the other, on the other hand, the global south, you know, is lacking in all these basic infrastructures of knowledge production. Mm -hmm. So that is the kind of, uh, you know, imbalance. Okay that has determined, you know, you know, the relationship of knowledge production between the North and the South. So, so there, is, there are clearly, you know, inequalities in, in the ways in which knowledge production, research and teaching uh, is organized, you know, in the world today. And um, especially if you look at it from the perspective of this idea of you know, so-called international uh, uh, journals, for instance. You know, the example of, of journals. Okay. You have journals that are classified as international journals or, or first-ranking or high-ranking journals, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They call it first-rate journals or okay. first-rate publishing industries, which you find mainly in the West, in the global north. So you have the university presses of Oxford, of Cambridge, of Harvard, you know, of many other, of the other centers of academic excellence now, mm -hmm. you know. So any knowledge that is not validated, do you understand that has not gone through 
you know, the baiting process of these centers of academic excellence in the global north, mm. you know, is seen to be of less quality, inferior. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So there are journals that are global journals, yeah. globally recognized journals. Mm-hmm. Publishers, yeah. Publishers that are globally recognized. Mm. Yeah. And that is not to say that there are no publishers or university presses in the global south. Okay. They do exist, but they can't compete because okay. they don't have the resources to compete globally. And then again, at the center of this in unequal relation is the role of what I would call gatekeepers. There are those who determine all of these parameters of qualities. Okay. You know, what is good knowledge and what is bad uh-huh. knowledge. Okay. You know, okay. and, and these this are this, the, the institutions the academic journals, the editorial boards of these journals, you know, and, and, and the different, you know, academies, you know, spread in different parts of the global north. You know, they determine who, 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 who is seen as uh, a good scholar, not so good scholar. Recently, there was a debate over social media about, you know, what it means to have good you know, knowledge of good universities in Nigeria. I mean, between Nigerians in diaspora, academic scholars, exactly. and academic uh, in diaspora, and and academics in Nigeria. Exactly. I know you you, you have followed the debate. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, so uh, <laughs> Moses Ochoni and others. Moses Ochoni, Moses Ochoni, <laughs> exactly. And others in which Moses and his likes berated Nigerian academia. Exactly. You know, for all kinds of intellectual fraud, including plagiarism, mm. but without taking into cognizance the difficult circumstances under which these scholars uh, uh, work, really. But clearly, there is there is an unequal relation of production of knowledge. You know, in the global academy, I mean, in in in, in, in around the world, okay. and this is determined by the history of colonialism to a very large extent. And that is what actually, you know, precipitated the whole idea of decolonization itself. I mean, to balance, you know, this relationship, Mm. but somehow the way we do it is problematic. Exactly. Now there is increasing call, for instance, for for what I would call, for what what people call convergence. You know, how do we really tap into you know, this existing structures of knowledge production, unequal relations of production in order to, to take take advantage, you know, of what is available and make make do with it. Exactly. So without necessarily continuing to lament this lamentation about inequality, inequality, what do you do with it? Mm. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Is there research or are there concepts that you feel is excluded uh, from the view of uh, global academia? Well, views or concepts. Well, when you say global academia, really, hey, what does that mean? Hey, because <laughs> for me, like I said, we have two binary oppositions: exactly. global north and global, global south. south. And this yeah. has been the 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 bane of okay. the academia, you know. In, in, in all parts of the world, really, when you talk about unequal relations of, uh, you know, in terms of knowledge production, you know, this debate around decolonization, I think it revolves around the same issue of, 
you know, exclusion okay. of certain parts of the world from the global academic discourse. Okay. You know, that is exclusion, ex- exclusion of some regions okay. of the world, you know, from the mainstream academic discourse of the globe. So if you take the case of Africa, for instance, you have centers of African studies in different parts of the world. But these centers of African studies are only, you know, centers that are, I mean, that exist, you know, I mean, in a way to perpetuate that same unequal relations of knowledge production. Because the methods and the the structures within which they produce knowledge about Africa are hardly African or rarely African in a way. You know, so what they do is they, you know, support or fund researchers in Africa and then data is collected and then taking back to the West, to those centers for processing, for theorization. So they theorize on the basis of raw data, primary data, you know, uh, collected from Africa and then they, 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 they document Africa and discuss Africa in their own ways. In most cases, without taking into cognizance the indigenous dynamics, and the perspectives of you know, the Africans in, in, in a way. So I don't see it as inclusion really, but it's a subtle exclusion of Africa from the global economic, I mean, academic discourse because they determine what is studied and how it is studied and even for whom it is studied because many of these studies don't even speak to Africa or speak for Africans. They speak for you know, for a different audience, for Western audience, <laughs> not for the, 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 the African. So they are not writing for Africa. They are writing for, you know, their, their, their own uh, audience. So there are, I think... Uh, so there are differences uh, in approaches? Yes, there are differences in approaches, I would say, of course, because of the fact of, uh, you know, the background, you know, coming from Africa, you know, you, you, you would have a different understanding of Africa, you know, from a researcher coming from the West, for instance. I mean, you can have the same perspective because of the, the role of the, I mean, culture you know, and, and, and background and how this shaped the, the, the intellectual formation, academic formation of intellectuals and, and their, the direction of their research. So Africa is excluded, other parts of the world are excluded as the margins, you know, in the global production of knowledge. And uh, indigenous methods of research, or indigenous perspectives are not taken into account in most cases. And that is why increasingly you are having this new trend now about indigenous knowledge, right? coming up and the attempt by some scholars to really study uh, some parts of this parts of this world 
using indigenous methods and promoting indigenous knowledge, indigenous science, indigenous social science, indigenous mm. humanities, and, and the rest. Yeah, yeah interesting. Uh, and finally, mm. with the current happenings uh, in the country, yes, do you see uh, is Nigeria's unity negotiable or non-negotiable too? Nigerian unity is negotiable, of course. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I don't think there is any unity that is not negotiable. Okay. But the problem is how you do the negotiation. Okay. How do you negotiate or renegotiate or whatever? Okay. I think I have been a very passionate believer in Nigerian unity. And I think my research is inspired you know, by some of these problems that you just I mean, mentioned, the divisions, the cleavages, the communal violence, people are just being murdered on account of their religion, ethnicity, or language, or even region in this world. I mean, this is a problem that has bedeviled this country for a very long period of time. And throughout this struggle, this period of, uh, of travels, I think I've never had any doubt about the feasibility of the Nigerian project, you know, until very recently. Okay. Until very recently. Mm. And especially, that? Okay. And especially, you know, with this wave of violence in the southwest. Okay. South in the southwest. Yeah, in okay. south western Nigeria, where a particular group of, you know, people, mm. communities, ethnicities, you know, are targeted for 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 killing. Okay. You know, simply because they have been labeled or stereotyped as hardsmen, okay. Fulani hardsmen or House of Fulani, whatever. You know, so there are discourses and stereotypes that are meant to stigmatize. I mean, to 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 to, to, to really, you know. Uh, No, just continue. Okay. To to demonize certain ethnic communities in this country. And this is not good for Nigeria. I thought, you know, the present government will do whatever it takes in order to bridge this uh, cleavages, ethnic, religious, and but unfortunately, what we are seeing today, I think, is perhaps even unprecedented in, in a number of ways. Okay. Different kinds of crises across the country, banditry, kidnapping, Boko Haram, farmer <laughs> had okay. clashes, and now we are beginning to see the resurgence of ethnic violence in the southwest. I don't think Nigeria can 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 survive this kind of, I mean, continuous okay. violence. Mm -hmm. yeah. Something has to be done very quick and drastically okay. in order to 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 stem the tide of violence and 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 prevent the possible dismemberment. Okay. Possible dismemberment. So, of course, this is the trend. That may be a yes. possibility. Yes. Okay. Of course. I mean, what what we expect because the state has failed, mm. you know, in its basic responsibility 
of providing security and uh, and and keeping the nation as one. So the unity you are talking about, whether it is it is already being negotiated through these kinds of you know violence. The only thing that you have that is, you know, I would say existing as Nigerian state is the state itself. Okay. Those are basic structure. Uh, yeah, the state. But but Nigerians really do not trust the Nigerian state. They do not believe in the country. They are not patriotic. We do not have any shared narrative, or what I may call national narrative, which is basic, which is very critical in order to sustain that unity. We don't have that, particularly historical narrative. You know, so the going back to the idea that I spoke about, you know, this endemic division along regionalism, ethnic cleavages and what have you, as reflected even in the academia. You know, these are places where, I mean, that are supposed to really, you know, moderate and, and address some of these challenges, but they are also divided among, among, along those lines. So Nigerian unity is negotiable. How do we, how we do that is the question. Because the problem I foresee is that we can't even sit on the table to agree and disagree about the future of this country. So issues around where you start the division of this country, you know, it's also a very serious problem. It's a very, very serious problem. Where do you draw the line, for instance, between the so-called Hausa Fulani and the other tribes in the Middle Belt? Yeah. You know, how do you, what do you do with the intermission, the historical fusion of the different tribes across centuries? Well? Yeah. So you have different tribes spread across the country. Exactly. And there are no boundaries. Yeah. Ethnic boundaries yeah. or cultural boundaries or even religious boundaries. Yeah. So when you begin to renegotiate or negotiate the unity of Nigeria, how are you going to, to do it? What are you going to create out of this complex, you know, ethnic and religious formations. New nations. How do you divide the country between the north and the south? In the north, there are endemic cleavages as well, as well as in the south. Exactly. So I think the unity of this country, well, is negotiable, but I think it's deeply problematic because there are no clear practical solutions to the negotiation or rather to the, the problem. When we dismember, I, I, I can't see us building new blocks of unity <laughs> and existing harmoniously as opposed to what it is today. So the best thing is to remain together, if I may suggest, okay. road, I mean, to stay together yeah. as one because that is where our strength actually lies. Yeah, okay. You know, as a diverse country, yeah you know, with a shared narrative, you know, unity in diversity. And even in the United States, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not a homogeneous country religiously and ethnically. Exactly. Even India, yeah. South Africa, you know, all nations, are, you hardly see a nation that is originally inherently homogeneous exactly. culturally. Mm -hmm. Nations and strong nations are products of, you know, what... Mm -hmm. You know, what Benedict Anderson describes as imagined communities, mm. you know, yeah. deliberate creations, mm. you know, of 
mean consensus agreements no exactly thank you very much yes. thanks for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this conversation there'll be many more to follow so stay tuned you can also go to www.africanose.eu for much more information and if you have any thoughts comments ideas on hosts or guests or any other things to share please get in touch with us we'd love to hear from you